Hello, it's Andy Johnson from The Fried Egg. I want to thank everybody for tuning into our podcast. Because of Tom's uh, gracious uh, amount of time he gave us, we're going to split this podcast into two parts. We will be publishing part two on Friday. So please, you know, if you enjoy our podcast, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. It, uh, it really helps us out and it's, it's greatly appreciated. Thanks and uh, enjoy Tom, uh, the podcast with Tom. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today I'm excited to welcome Tom Doak onto the podcast. Tom is one of today's preeminent golf course architects, as well as an esteemed author of books such as The Anatomy of, Go- of a Golf Course, The Life and Work of Alistair McKenzie, and of course his uh, ultra-popular Confidential Guides to Golf courses. Uh, welcome on, Tom. Thank you, Andy. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk golf course architecture today. And uh, I think a great way to start would be uh, to give the listeners a little bit about your background and uh, how you got into golf course architecture. Well, I certainly told this story a lot, so I'm probably covering ground a lot of your listeners have heard. But basically, I, you know, I grew up playing a little public course a mile from my house in Stanford, Connecticut. But as a contrast to that, um, I saw some of the best golf courses in America when I was a kid. Um, My dad barely played golf, but he would go once or twice a year on some uh, corporate thing where he played golf with the people he did business with on the phone all year. And they went to the best golf resorts in America. So I thought Harbortown was one of the very first courses I ever saw when it was brand new and rated in Golf Digest Top 10, and then Pinehurst not long after that, and then Pebble Beach not long after that, and then unfortunately one of of the organizations that he was part of, they did their convention at Pebble Beach and they decided they really liked it, so they went back there like every other year when I was a teenager. (laughs) So I I played Pebble Beach a bunch, you know, long enough ago that the twilight rate was 40 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) Things have changed a little bit since that day, huh? Yes, they have, and I don't, you know, I, and I haven't played it very much since they went up to their current price. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, so, would you say, you know, a lot of people say they have a singular moment or a golf course that, you know, inspires them to get even into, you know, being becoming a fan of golf course architecture. Was there a singular moment, or was it more of a building over over your childhood years? I guess it was more of a building. I mean, the, you know, the two different things that I always go back to are um, when when I was at Harbortown, and, you know, it was literally the third golf course I ever saw. Um, 
there was the old golf writer Charles Price had a place at Hilton Head, and when Mr. Dye was building the golf course, he spent a lot of time with him. And then when the golf course opened, uh, Mr. Price did a little booklet on the golf course, which is pretty much like a yardage book now, except no yardages because nobody played by yardages in the nineteen seventies. But you know, so there was a there was a diagram of the hole and like three sentences on how to play, like second hole. You know, there's only one fairway bunker on the left, but but you really need to be close to the fairway bunker on the left if you're trying for the green in two because there's a tree up there on the right that you have to get past. You know, it was just a really simple primer on golf course architecture. Really well explained, simple enough a 10-year-old could go, oh, that's cool. So, you know, that's the first thing that got me interested in architecture, that oh, there was much more to it than just hit the ball, find it, hit it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then... You know, seeing Pebble Beach and Cypress Point when I was a kid um, was huge. You know, I mean, I always feel really lucky to have gotten to go to Cypress Point really early on. Um, my dad's boss at Unilever, uh, when he retired, moved out there and became a member of Cypress Point. <laughs> so I got to play it two or three times when I was a teenager and you know, it's a very emotional place. And, you know, you know, that's probably the place where I thought, you know, that there, that this was a great career and it would be a great thing to do if I could figure out how to do it. Although, you know, when I started at college, I didn't really know how to pursue it. And I had to, you know, I really had to write letters to everybody in the golf business to ask, you know, what I should do and how to go about it. Mm-hmm. So after college, you did you start right? I know you worked under Pete Dye for a number of years. Did he give you the kind of first job right out of college, or was there somebody else in between that? Uh, no, I didn't work for anybody else. Um, the first job I had was working for Mr. Dye on a construction crew at Long Cove when I was twenty. But I've been writing him letters for three years at that point. I mean, I started. <laughs> I started on my 18th birthday. I was a freshman at college thinking, you know, engineering is not for me. I'm spending all my time reading golf books. I really should see if I could pursue this. And Pete Dye was one of the first people I wrote to. And, you know, I, and I, you know, I, mean, I wrote to Pete Dye and Jeff Cornish and Dean Beeman and Ben Crenshaw and a ton of people just asking for help. And, um, you know, Pete was, Pete got back to me when I was 18, just a nice little note back. And, you know, he didn't really offer much advice at that point. I got it from other people, but, you know, but everybody else in the golf business said, you know, that's the guy you should work for. You know, if you can figure out how to get a construction crew working for him, that would be great. So I just kept writing him letters for three years until finally when I was a junior in college, he called me like the day I was going on summer break and said, yeah, we kind of are losing some guys on our crew down here, and, you know, we could use a couple more people. Could you be here tomorrow? <laughs> that was literally the first time I talked to him, and I was working for him the next day. What a, what a cool story. Um, so with uh, Mr. Dye, you know, who were some other influential people early in your career outside of uh, Mr. Dye that, you, you know, you would say that, really helped shaped your kind of philosophies and your, and your career? 
Oh, God, there's lots. Um, you know, uh, George Pepper, who is the editor of Golf Magazine, the one who gave me a chance to start writing about golf. I wrote him a letter to the editor when I was like 18 or 19, 18, because because um, because I remember it was uh, you know it was actually about the top 50 golf courses list that they had just published and a and a long critique of it. <laughs> and he got back to me and said, "Well, you know, we're not putting 18 year olds in charge of this, but you can really write and." You know, we could use somebody who could write some stuff about architecture. So, you know, do you want to try to write like a little piece as a sidebar to the U.S. Open piece next year? So, you know, I started writing when I was a sophomore in college. And and uh, and by the time I, when I was a senior, I had a writing for magazines course and uh just before the semester was over, I had an eight-page feature article on coffee. <laughs> so I did well in that course. Um, you know, but that was a huge help to me because, you know, I, because of that, I, I didn't just have access to people as, as a young guy who wanted to be a golf course architect. You know, I could call up people in the golf business as a golf writer and, and ask them all sorts of questions. Um, so that was great for me for access to people. Um, and then, you know, Ben Crenshaw has been, you know, I wrote him a letter when I was 18 and said, if, if, you know, if you were me, what would you do? <laughs> and because he, he, you know, he, even though he hadn't started in architecture yet, he, it was pretty well known that he was interested in architecture and tried to see great courses. So, you know, at first he listed a few courses that he thought I should see. And then he said, he basically said, well, you know, if you come out to a tournament during a practice day, just, just uh, you know, come up and introduce yourself on a practice day, and, you know, we can walk around and talk talk about the golf course a little bit. So I did that four or five times while I was in college, and, you know, I got to walk inside the ropes with Crenshaw and Seve Ballesteros or, or David Graham and, and watch them play golf really up close and then talk some about, the golf course that we were seeing and you know wouldn't trade those experiences for anything <laughs> how um you know you've had you obviously stonewall had the u.s mid-am and um you know abandoned dune uh, pacific dunes has had some amateur events and high level amateur events and then you've you've obviously walked inside the ropes like you just said with uh crenshaw and uh sevi by Saros. how much how how much does it help uh, when you get to see that high-level golf with architecture and kind of, you know, understanding principles and, and how different people play the game? Well, that's a good question, and it's kind of... There's a lot of ways it helps, and there's some ways it hurts, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, because I worked for Mr. Die. I was around the tour a lot when I was really young. Um, you know, I worked for him just just when the TPC at Sawgrass came out and they played. I was there for the first two tournaments. I spent a lot of time walking with Pete Dye those first two years of the tournament while he was, you know, while people were criticizing the golf course. And, he, you know, he was just walking around watching play, trying to decide for himself if the holes were the way he thought they did. And... And they really did, you know, 
you know, he'd gotten under the skin of the players a lot. And, you know, the guys, the guys that were more interested in architecture and more critical of the golf course were so tied up in that that they couldn't play the golf course worth a damn. But then there were young guys that, you know, were just sort of, okay, you know, I just, this is really tough and I got to hit these shots. And there were guys that could play the golf course. So, you know, that was a fascinating time to be around the tour and, and, and talk to some of those guys and see what their opinions were. Um, you know, when I got on my own, um, I realized really fast that, that, you know, when I built High Point in Traverse City for a, for a guy that had owned the land for years, you know, the tour was never coming there. You know, I mean, I, I was around the tour enough to understand that, you know, where they play tournaments at that level is about where the sponsors want them to. So, you know, so, you know, I never really visualized that my career would be about that at all. Certainly at the start, it wasn't going to be. So, I, you know, I kind of had to forget some of what I'd learned and, and not worry about building a set of tees at 7,400 yards because the people that were paying $45 to play high point didn't need those tees. Yep. Um, and, you know, and because I'd been around the tour a little bit, when, when early clients would bring up something like that, I could just laugh at them. And, and correct them really fast. Like, no, don't think about that. You, you, you're crazy to think about that. Unless you've got $5 million burning a hole in your pocket, in which case, let's revise my design fee a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you were part of, I, you know, part of kind of the, the group of architectures that ushered in this, you know, new style of design that was minimalist and, really, like you said, focused more on the everyday player and, you know, what they needed rather than building long, hard golf courses that kind of fit into a square box, par, par 72, four par fives, four par threes. What was, you know, the toughest part about, you know, kind of ushering in this new thought and new thinking of design? Well... It wasn't, I mean, when I started High Point, you know, I, I really only had to answer to one client. And and I sort of started with the idea that it was a really good piece of land, and if I failed, I wanted to fail on the side of, you know, moving less dirt instead of moving too much. Because everything I'd seen for the last 10 years was people moving too much by my, but for my taste, you know. I mean, I, I, by then I'd gotten around and seen most of the best golf courses in the world, and, and most of the ones I really liked weren't built that way. You know, I mean, I saw how Pete Dye built what he built, and I'm not demeaning it, but, I mean, he's a genius for coming up with some of the things he did on bad pieces of ground. But when you got a good piece of ground, you don't have to do those things. And, you know, I was really lucky to stumble into my first job with a pretty good piece of ground to work with, and I just thought... You know, the, I mean, sort of the guiding light of it was that three miles down the road from High Point was a Jack Nicklaus course called the Bear at Grand Traverse Resort. And it was a completely manufactured golf course. They went out in a field and built a bunch of mounds, lakes, and everything else and called it Scottish style, which just, you know, horrified <laughs> me. But, you know, I, I just kept thinking, well, you know, I want to do something that's almost the dead opposite of that on this piece of ground and just see how it goes. And... You know, the, the superintendent that, that we hired to work on it, Tom Mead, who had been at Crystal Downs for a while before he worked with me, 
you know, he and I were talking about at that point, you know, we were young and sort of like, well, if 50% of people like it and 50% of people hate it, then we'll be about the right place. And of course, we didn't tell our client that because the client probably would have been horrified. <laughs> you know, most clients want 99.9% of people to like it. They don't want to give up a potential customer. <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, that's, you know, that's why everything gets so homogenized. Yeah. Oh, we better do four par threes because that's what people like. And, you know, the old golf course architects didn't think that way. It hadn't been so standardized yet. And plus, they, you know, it wasn't such a commercial business in the 1920s. I mean, golf clubs in the 1920s were actually formed by a group of guys that wanted to build a golf club. Now they're formed by a developer who wants to sell memberships in it. You know, even if he's not really looking to make money in it, he's still concerned about, you know, he's taking the financial risk and he's got to figure out how to sell the memberships in it to, to get his money back. So, you know, he doesn't want to rock the boat too much. And that's, you know, a lot of architects are really afraid to rock the boat. And I'm just not because I've seen a lot of things that are really different and I, and I know they worked and, and I, I think, well, why can't I make that same idea work, or why can't I make a little different idea work? It's it's interesting you you talk about that, and um, I'm curious. You know, obviously, with Cypress Point, I know Alistair McKenzie was worried that he had gone too far and you know done too much, and worried that it was going to be too tough. But the the natural beauty, obviously, um, nobody complained about it. Do you feel that? You, your golf course, when you, when you build something and looking at it, you know, for the future of golf, you know, 20 years said, do you need to have, do you feel like you need to have criticism from some, some angle? If, if it's a great project, does it have to have some sort of criticism? Oh, I don't know. I just, you know, it doesn't have to, but I'm not afraid of it. Yeah. Um, You know, and that's, and that's having, you know, having been around Pete Dye for that week of Sawgrass, I'm not afraid of that because I, I, you know, it'll never get more intense than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was, and ultimately, that was good for golf. Yep, yep. It's uh, he he did a great stuff. I I think that uh, Pete Dye often gets a very bad rap. Um, you know, when p- people talk about his di- designs being too penal. And you having a you know a front row seat to that, I, I imagine a lot of the design philosophy, some of his designs were based off of what the developer wants, correct? Well, they always are. Yes, I mean you're always you, you've always got to answer to your clients to some degree, and and you know, and a lot of people, you know, when people criticize what other architects are doing. You know, that, that you have to stop and think, well, what are they being hired to do? You know, I mean, most of the projects that Jack Nicholas gets, you know, the developer wants a big, expensive, quote-unquote, championship golf course because he's trying to sell big, expensive lots next to it, and that's what those people think they, you know, that's what they think is prestige and what they want to live on. So, you know, if you're not going to see Jack Nicholas build a 6,300-yard minimalist, efficient golf course because that's that's not the kind of people that hire him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
you know, he, you know, a lot of people are very critical of Mr. Dye, which to me is crazy. I mean, nobody that's ever spent any time with Pete Dye would criticize the man at all. I mean, he's he's given a lot to a lot of people. He's always been very open about um, the game and what he thinks is right about it and what he thinks is wrong about it. You know, he had me ghostwriting articles about how the golf equipment was getting out of hand 30 years ago, <laughs> more than 30 years ago. Um, you know, he's, he's still sort of a role model to me, especially in the way he went about the work, how involved he was in it personally, and and that, you know, he made decisions out in the field and he changed it, he, he changed his mind on the fly to make something better. He wasn't afraid to you know, do that. And, you know, even if it, even if the client was nervous about it, you know, he's like, it's going to be fine. I'm here. I'll get it sorted out. Um, and, you know, people see our work as being completely different because my golf courses don't look like his golf courses, mm -hmm. but you know, the way that they're built and, you know, and even a lot of the philosophy behind them, I mean, I'm building golf courses that are challenging to people and, you know, I just I just put the challenge in different places, and I don't make it all about length because I'm not building golf courses for the tour. Yep, I think I, I think that the tour needs more golf courses where the challenge isn't you know off the tee. You know, you've got hazards on both sides, and then hit it to the green because it it produces a certain type of player. You know, a golf yes, course. It does. I, there's no doubt that the tour tour courses and the way they set up the courses favor certain kinds of players. And, you know, they're not doing it deliberately, but, but it, but they do it, but they, they do make deliberate decisions that, that have that effect, you know, like they'll set up a hole. So if, you know, they'll set up a hole so the long hitters can make a carry and the short hitters really, can't. Mm -hmm. You know, and they think that rewards the guy who can hit the ball farther. But then, if the if the wind's in the face of that hole and the the long hitters can't make the carry, they'll move the tees up so that the long hitter can still make the carry and the short hitter still can't. So now, who are they? You know, now it's clear they have a bias. I think, um, and, you know, any short hitter on tour will tell you that. <laughs> I think a perfect example of that is is you look at Riviera. And, you know, probably the best architecture, architecturally sound golf course that they play year in, year out. And, you know, they haven't had a winner at Riviera younger than 28 years old in the last, I think, 12 years. And it, it, it favors somebody that understands. I think that course has no force carries. Um, it's more about hitting shots to the correct angles than it is hitting it far. Um, you know, there is a lot of strategy if you go for a carry and you don't, you know, there, there's so much that goes into that golf course. And I, I really think that's a great example. You see guys like last year, you had KJ Choi, you know, in the lead late on Sunday. And this guy is a 45 year old who hits it, you know, 270 yards. And this year you have Dustin Johnson win it, albeit it was soft and, you know, the rain, took a lot right. of the teeth out of it, but, you know, that's a course where it doesn't really favor a specific type of player. Yeah, well, I mean, 
I guess it doesn't favor a specific type of player. It, it does reward a player who knows how to work the ball mm-hmm. left to right and right to left, which you don't. There's not many courses on tour that do anymore. Yeah. It's really hard to build that on a new course with no, you know, if you, if you don't have any trees, you know, and and you can, you know, and you can carry the ball as far as those guys do, you know, even if the fairway is curving left to right or right to left or the bunkers are set up a certain way, you know, they can just hit it a mile in the air and land it 300 yards away in a relatively small area. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't matter which way it's curving. <laughs> So, uh, but you know, Riviera takes that away. There's holes that you can't hit that. You know, you you know, if if you're on 15, which kind of bends left to right off the tee, and you're you can't hit that shot, you kind of have to back off on the tee shot because if you just you know, because you can't take it up over the trees on the right to to go down there where you where you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's certain shots that it takes away from you on certain holes. And you, so you have to be able to adapt. You know, Dustin Johnson can adapt. You know, even if he's even if he's not going to try to hit the ball left to right, he'll he'll back off, and he's still long enough. He can hit the long shot into the green for the second shot. So I had uh, Michael Clayton on the podcast a, a couple months ago, and he talked about how he believes technology has diminished the skill, and obviously, you know, every, nobody's going to argue it's it's altered the path or the design um you know you designed your first course in 1990 or 18 1989 um how would you how have your philosophies changed over the years because of technology it hasn't my philosophy hasn't changed very much in 30 years you know and some people would say oh you shouldn't say something like that. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. But you know, again, I'm I'm re- I'm not building my courses for the elite players. I mean, I think about the elite players. I've been around enough of them. You know, Mike Clayton. I've had more fun playing golf with Mike Clayton a half a dozen times than with almost anybody I've ever played with because he, you know, he does know how to work the ball and have shots. You know, he came to he came to the state a bunch of years ago when I was doing that Arcapalooza thing and we were, we were going out to Sandhills and we stopped and played a couple of the other courses in the Sandhills on the way out. And, and one of them, that Bayside course that Dan Proctor and Dave Axland built, um, it's had some really severe holes and there was a hole that was a little like six at Riviera with a bunker in the middle of a green, except more slope around it. And the pin was like back, right. And, and after we'd all hit a shot to the green, I was like, I wonder if you could hit a shot, you know, that, that green looks so severe. It's like you could land a ball on the upper tier behind the pin or behind the bunker and have it sucked back down around the bunker to the lower tier where the pin is. And, you know, it took Mike two tries to hit that shot. <laughs> and, and you know, there's a lot of guys on tour that could that can hit those kind of shots. And the shots that Seve used to try to play and the shots that Ben Crenshaw used to play all the time but there's no percentage in it anymore. You know, nobody builds a golf course where, I mean, you know, that wasn't in, in, you know, that wasn't really the high percentage shot for Mike at the time. It was just like, yeah, I could pull that off. And it's a shame we don't see courses that, that get them to try those shots. Cause they're really, you know, that's what I learned from Pete Dye and watching the TPC. Those guys are way more talented than you get to see week to week. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that. But but for my own work, you know, my own work will give them chances to hit shots like that. But I'm just not worried about whether they're going to shoot 64 when they come because I don't have you know because there's not going to be a 72 hole PGA Tour stroke play event on this course. And because, and you know, and I don't have any ego at stake over what they do. You know, Gary Woodland went to Dismal River a couple of years ago, thinking he should he should play on Fescue the week before he went to Chambers Bay for the Open, and shot fifty nine one day on my course. <laughs> and, and you know that kind of boggles my mind. And at the same time, I'm like, yeah, you know, he's that good. If he gets it going, you know, those aren't the most severe greens I ever built. He's reaching the par fives in two, no problem. Yeah, and probably driving one of the par fours too. So yeah, he could shoot a number like that if he plays a great round of golf. And that does that doesn't really bother me, you know. And the thing is, the thing is, I think if you asked him, he'd say, "Oh no, that was a great round, and I had a lot of fun, and it's not like I wasn't challenged." Yeah, it's just that the you know the number adds up to what it adds up. But it's well, I think that's a huge problem with golf is this. Why why are we so wrapped up with par? It's just it's just a number. Like who cares if you right. go out and shoot 63 or 83 as long as you had fun, you know? Right. And you know, you could go you know, you could go different directions with that. Like, you know, I I went and saw um David Kidd's course at Gamble Sands a couple of years ago. And I, you know, I had heard about it that, you know, kind of as a reaction to some of the other things that he'd done that, that were critiqued pretty heavily, including by me, that, you know, he'd built a golf course that was, you know, it was big and pretty, but it was pretty easy. You know, like, I mean, in Golf Club Atlas, I, you know, the, the first testimonial to it, like five of the eight guys in my group had their career low score. And I'm like, that sounds crazy (laughs) you know if it's really if it's really that easy that that you know everybody's shooting their career low score then you know because i still you know i work for pete i still believe that you want to challenge the golfer i don't believe that you you want to make them shoot 112 but you want some shots out there that are challenging to them and if if you're doing that then they're probably not shooting their career low score the first time they see the place yeah um and you know, there is a fine, you know, there's a fine line. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the things I've learned about design is, you know, I think a lot of my best work is, is the par fours and especially the short par fours. And the reason the short par fours come out so good is because, because you can get away with more, you know, it's like, it's only 350 yards. So this green can be severe or that, you know, I can pinch the landing area really narrow. Or I can put cross bunkers 40 yards in front of the green because, you know, because I'm not making you lay up off the tee and hit a forward in, mm-hmm. you know, you can approach this a whole different, a whole bunch of different ways. And the other thing that's interesting about short par fours is, you know, you can give people a really wide range of angles into the green, you know, on a 470 yard hole, most people, you know, they just have to hit it on the B line because they have to hit it as far as they can twice just to get there. And they can't really worry about what kind of angle they're giving themselves. But a 350-yard haul, yeah, you can drive it way out to the right and still be hitting nine iron or wedge. Yeah, I, I from what I've I've played about 
seven of your courses and you, the, the short par fours are really great. And they, what I really like about them is if you play them correctly, you've got a great shot at, you know, you've, you should make birdie, but if you, the second you get out of position, you're, you're in a very, very difficult place where all of a sudden you're looking at it and like, well, I have to hit a really great shot here to make, you know, a have a chance at three and even make four sometimes, depending on how, how far out of position you get. Not to mention, you know, you have so many different ways you could play it. Um, one that comes to mind is Stream Song. Is it 13, 13 at Stream Song or 14? Yeah. 13. 13. Uh-huh. And that, that one, I got into the, I tried to hit driver and I got into the left bunker and, oh, my God, I was just in <laughs> the worst place in the world. <laughs> and I think I just picked up my ball after after about seven shots. <laughs> well, you know that hole is that hole is kind of loosely based on, and not so loosely based on six at Pacific Dunes. It's one of the it's the only hole at Stream Song that we we had to do a lot of earthwork on that hole. I mean, it was kind of the, the fairway was a lot higher than it is now, and it was you couldn't you couldn't even see where the water was coming in on the left because the fairway was so high you couldn't over it and see that there was a really steep and there there was like a really steep dangerous edge to the left side so we kind of had to cut it down to make it to make it where you could get people around the golf course without somebody driving a cart over a cliff by accident <laughs> and you know and and you know bill core needed the dirt from that fairway for for one of the tees that he wanted to build so we just you know we just moved all the dirt over to his hole and you know, just whittled away at the fairway until we got it down. But but I was trying to think of okay, how do I do a short par four with the fairway down and the green up? And you know, I think six at Pacific is one of the best holes that I've built. So it's the only it's the only hole I've tried to copy that that basic idea from for for this hole as well. I mean, the difference is the one at Streamsong is even a little shorter, and you're usually not playing it right into the teeth of the wind. So you, can, you know, at Pacific, it's into the wind most of the time. So, you know, driving the green is not really, you know, you could drive it up near there somewhere, but the, if the wind is in your face, you're not going to drive the green unless mm-hmm. you're a tour pro. Yeah. Even the tour pros aren't going to do, do it that much. Stream song, you can really take a shot at it if you want. I mean, it's, it's, it's a hell of a risk. I've never hit driver on that hole myself. I haven't played it a lot of times. <laughs> but, but, you know... I'm not going to take the bait on that particular hole because I know because I know how many things can go wrong. And that's, <laughs> when, you know, a friend of mine says says that on my short par fours, you should just never take the bait. <laughs> that no matter how tempting it looks, that you know, this will be an easy birdie if I just do this. That that's usually a bad play, <laughs> at least for them, uh, percentage wise. And you know, and that's kind of what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean you're. You're at least trying to make it where the guy who is, you know, going for something is taking a big risk to do it. Well, you know, if if you could if you could drive it anywhere and still make birdie all the time, then that's not a very good hole. I I agree, and I mean, I walked off the hole and I thought to myself, why the hell did you just hit driver when you can just hit a four iron right here and you've got a wedge in. And I think that's a great way, though. That's a great subtle way to challenge, you know, the better player is to give them something that 
entices them to hit driver because they th- every every really good player thinks they can hit driver where they want it if they really need to and you know yeah and they and they think that they should be entitled to hit driver on every single longer hole mm-hmm. you know i've i've heard that criticism a bunch from from good players oh, don't take the driver out of my hands and i and i don't yeah. i just make it like a stupid play sometimes that you can hit it. <laughs> I'm not making you lay up. Just, just you better hit a good shot if you do it. Yep. And, um, yeah, I think that's a really important part of golf. And you know the 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 tough part about doing that though, and the reason you don't see every other architect doing the same thing is because it's not always popular to do that. You know, you walked off at thinking, oh, I've learned something about architecture, but a lot of, like, low handicap guys are going to make, you know, they make eight on a short par four, they hate the hole, and they might hate the whole golf course as a result of that. And they're not going to go back and play it the second time and figure it out. So, and, and then the client is nervous about that. So there's a lot of, and the architect is nervous about that because he wants to, win some award and he doesn't want good players to go around telling him he's building unfair golf courses you know, it's really bad for business so so there's a lot of guys that just shy away from building things like that that might be controversial and again i mean i've just been you know i've just been trained from day one not to be afraid of any of that you know that that's that actually makes the golf course better in the long run Provided you have the confidence that people are going to come back, you know, and yeah, you have to have some confidence. And you know, where I am now, it's a little easier to have that confidence. People will give me the benefit of the doubt, and you know, but but you know, I only got there because I've been doing it from the start. You know, yeah. even when I was risking my career, <laughs> I was building those kinds of holes. <laughs> so, which. Uh... Which of your projects are you most proud of? You know, it doesn't have to necessarily be the the best one or the highest rated one, but what what one are you most proud of and why? Well, you know, I'm not I don't give the politically correct answer that all oh, are all my children are all equal, but um, you know, I'm proud of a lot of them. I mean, we, you know, we've worked on some great projects and, you know, and you know, not just me, but the guys that work for me have spent a ton of time on them trying to get them right, and I think they've come out really good. And, you know, so picking one between Pacific Dunes and Barnboogle and, you know, and then some places like Rock Creek that aren't as well-known or Stone Eagle that was really hard to build, but, you know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, I'm proud of all of them. Um, you know, to some extent, I'm just as proud of something like Common Ground that we build a public course that people can play for 40 bucks. Especially considering some of the programs that they've come up with to not just encourage golf, encourage public golf, and encourage youth golf there, but you know we managed to build them a little kids course on the side for free for you know what we saved up during the construction budget by building it as, as efficiently as we could. And they, you know, they've used it for all kinds of school programs. And then, then one of the, one of the people involved with the Evans scholarships in Colorado decided to like start like a 
a caddy camp and leadership academy on it so that they um, they train the kids, the local kids in the neighborhood and kids that they bus in to be caddies, and they subsidize it. So you only, they, pay, they pay the caddy a little bit out of their funds so that you only have to pay $25 to pick a caddy. It doesn't cost any more than a golf cart would. And then, and then by, by letting these kids caddy, if they caddy more than like 20 rounds in a summer, they're eligible to apply for the Evans scholarship. Yeah. So that, you know, I'm really proud of that for entirely, you know, for reasons that have nothing to do with golf course architecture or my ego. You know, mm-hmm. it's just nice to work for clients that try to do cool things for golf like that. Yeah, I think that is an emerging trend in the industry. What we're starting to see is, you know, with places like Winter Park uh, Golf Course and and Common Ground, where there's these new, you know, municipality-run golf courses that are less expensive. And, you know, I one of the things I think is interesting is that, you know, everybody – and uh, likes to go they don't really know the names of architecture and you you've established a great intern program i'd be curious you know if if you were running a municipality and you could hire you know if you could put five guys on a list of who you'd want to hire to do a, a lower cost renovation of a of a golf course who would they be <laughs> Are you asking me to pick? Now I have to be politically correct. Yeah. You're asking me to pick between like 15 guys that that have worked for me at various times, <laughs> and and I've you know and I've helped train that are all really talented, you know, including three guys, you know, including three or four that still work for me on my payroll who are <laughs> as talented as any. I mean, you know, the hardest thing about my company is that you know I always envisioned that the guys would you know the young people that we brought in, you know, would event, would want to move through and then try to get out on their own. Um, you know, like I did when I worked for, you know, I worked for PTI for like four years and, and there wasn't really a way to keep working for PTI. He didn't really keep a payroll. He just moved from one project to the next and they were all over and you, you know, you just had to pick up and move to the next one when you were done with one. So, it was, a, you know, it was a business model where the, the employees were, in, it was, they were intended to kind of burn out after a while, and then you'd find new people to replace them. You know, he gave a lot of people a, a chance that way, and I've tried to do the same thing. Um, but, you know, when the, when the recession happened and all of a sudden it was really hard to get a job, then, you know, nobody wants to leave and try to go on their own. And that was, you know, that was a really tough thing in my company, having to downsize a little bit and try to figure out who stayed and who left. Um, you know, and I tried to do it in a way, you know, I kind of kicked the senior guys out of the nest, which was very controversial, but yeah, I knew they could make it on their own by then, and I knew the other guys couldn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and by that point, you know, the, the younger guys were the ones that were on the machine shaping the stuff, and to me that's the most important part of the whole deal. You know, if you're, if you're really good at that, you will always have work in this business. And, you know, and that's one of the great things about my internship program. All these young guys that have worked for me, if I don't have, you know, I mean, I don't want to be so busy, you know, I don't want to be gone 365 days a year so that they can all stay busy. (laughs) You know, I just, I can only do so many 
projects a year without losing my mind, you know, getting too frazzled trying to do too many things. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these guys, you know, especially with, the, you know, with Eric Iverson and Brian Slonick and Brian Schneider, who still work for me, I mean, all the young guys that have worked for us know that it's going to be hard to ever, you know, get past them and root one of them out. I mean, they, you know, they're like still young and enthusiastic guys with like 15 years experience on the equipment who can, you know, build anything you want at the snap of a finger. So, you know, so all the young people that come through see that, see the writing on the wall that they're either going to have to go on their own or they're going to have to go work for somebody else eventually, you know, when we're not so busy. Um, but they are, you know, they're, you know, the cool thing is that nearly every good project in the last 15 years, no matter who the architect is, there's like one or two guys that, that worked for me for a while that have helped build it. Um, you know, and, you know, and because we've had success and because a lot of architects are curious about how we do things, you know, having worked on Farnboogle Dunes or Pacific Dunes or Dismal River or wherever is a pretty good thing to have on your resume. And, you know, some other architect will want you to work on his project so he can try to get a little bit of that knowledge into it. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's true, and I think you're on the right kind of philosophy. My the best boss I ever had told me that you know part of being a boss is always trying to make uh, you know your the people that report to you end up being better at at your job than you are. So. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's a weird thing because, you know, I mean, I'm a very hands-on person. And, you, you know, I'm still kind of resistant to the fact that, you know, I've graduated to the point where I'm not as hands-on on my own project. You know, I mean, I, I went out and walked what's left of High Point with somebody the other day and said to him, well, you know, the special thing about this is, this is the only one of these courses that I built all these greens myself. And, and, you know, I'm not saying they're better than the ones that my guys are doing with me now. We're turning out great work now too, but I, you know, it was different because it was all me and, and I really enjoyed that part of the business. And I, you know, I'm not good, you know, I'm bulldozer to justify I mean, I've clearly got tons of people around about what I did at High Point was that, you know, a lot of times I didn't even know exactly where I was going when I was, when I, when I would get on and start building green, but, you know, I knew when to jump off because it looked good. (laughs) And that's a really different process than what everybody imagines we do is that we, you know, oh, we have an exact idea of what this green is going to look like, you know, when we're tromping around in the trees before we ever start building a golf course. I mean, I don't have that all figured out in my mind. You know, that's the fun part. That's, that's what makes going to work every day exciting is, you know, figuring it out and making it better as you go. Yeah. So, 
you've done a ton of restorations, um, you know, of a lot of classic golf courses. Um, what's what? What would you say is the most difficult thing about doing a restoration versus designing a course, and you know, some of the key differences? Oh, by far the most difficult thing is is uh, dealing with big committees or, you know, hundreds of members as your client instead of one guy, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, because I've never, I've never worked for any club where everybody was really on the same page. There are all sorts of factions and differences of opinion as to, you know, what direction they should be going. And they're looking to you for advice, but there's always going to be people that disagree with you. And, you know, and that's, you know, I've been really lucky and the golf courses I've done by myself, you know, I haven't worked for, you know, I imagine that dealing with, you know, having a municipal project, you could run into that same problem. You know, you're dealing with a committee. I've only, I've built 35 new courses and, and only once I dealt with a committee. Um, nearly always I had like one person that I answered to. And that's just, you know, that's great because if you, you know, if you, you know, as long as they're okay with what you're doing, then you don't have to worry about what else what else you're doing. When you've got a you know, when you got a bunch of members, then they they want to know all the details in advance. You know, a, a, the one person client, he could be comfortable with the fact that you don't know everything right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other than that, I mean, you know, where I think where I think a lot of um, restoration renovation work goes wrong is you know not so much the ideas but the execution i mean you know in theory if it's really a restoration project then no matter what architect you hired they should be telling you the same thing (laughs) i mean here's here's what the golf course was here's what we should be trying to go back but there you know there's there's varying interpretations of what restoration means you know, does it mean putting back exactly what was there in 1926? Or does it mean, well, technology changed and we all hit the ball so much farther now that, you know, we're going to we're going to make it play the same, but we got to stretch it out and move the fairway bunkers to different places and all that. Um, you know, that's not the way I advise clubs most of the time, but but, you know, that's a different interpretation. So you do have different ideas on what restoration is, but ultimately when you're rebuilding something, you know, ideally you'd just be doing the work that really needs to happen. Like you don't have to rebuild a hundred fairway bunkers. You don't have to rebuild every bunker on this golf course. You just have to rebuild some. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, but you can only do that if you're good enough to make the new ones look indistinguishable from the stuff that was built 50 years ago. There's not that many people that are good at that. Um, you know, when you when you when you do it the normal way and bid it out to a contractor, they're not good at that, and they they don't have that much incentive at being good at that. They just you know their contract is to build a bunker and get it done as fast as they can, and not have to tinker around with it so much because they make more money that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and we just you know, I've got the guys who can get on the equipment and shape it and make it look like it fits and you know and our incentive is all about getting it right however long it takes and you know that's what our clients want yeah it's um so you've got the loop opening this year 
um, which is a reversible course. Uh, if anybody hasn't heard of it, you can play. It's essentially two different golf courses with 18 greens that you can play a different direction <clears throat> each day. Um, right. It's a, it's it's an 18-hole golf course that, that every other day you play it backwards down in. Mm-hmm. 18 fairways in the 17th fairway and all the way back around and then the next day you play it forwards and then um, and then you also did the sheep ranch out in bandon dunes where um it's essentially you put the ball on the ground and you tee it to different greens i i love this concept um what are some other kind of innovative concepts that you've you've got that you would love to try out Uh, well, I don't say I've got a bunch. <laughs> you know, not 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 all of them are like groundbreaking innovation. And you know, the reversible golf course wasn't my idea. I mean, yeah. that, that's something I read about in Tom Simpson's book when I was like 16 years old, and just thought, God, that's a cool idea. I'd love to do something like that someday. Uh-huh. It just took me a, a long, long time to find the right place to do it. <laughs> um, so some of the things that I'm thinking about, God, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to do, them, but. Um, uh, there are there's a few different kinds of projects that I'd like to do. Um, you know, one uh, one that I'll put out there that I've tried to sell to one or two clients and and they've they've shrugged it off and like no 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 we don't want to do anything like that. Um, I would like to build a golf course that's tailored to women. You know, not just like has a good set of women's tees, but it's you know, it's it's sixty three hundred yards max because that's the longest that an LPGA player would want to play it, and it goes down from there. You know, that would be an entirely different experience. You know, I, I mean, like I I spent a couple of days um, at in the practice rounds of the Women's Open at Sabonic, uh watching them play my course, and you know, like up close, I. I uh, um, I contacted uh, Stacy Lewis and Paula Creamer in advance of that event and said, you know, could I walk with you for a round and, and just, you know, watch what you're doing and in return I'll answer any questions you have about how I think you ought to play certain holes? And they both said, yes, we will do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was great for me to get back inside the ropes and, and you know, see where they land the ball and, and see how it reacts. And, you know, they're so precise. I mean, and women golf, you know, like at Sabonic, the 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 percentage of fairways hit statistic was like, you know, the last player in the field was at seventy percent, and the best the best players are at like ninety six because uh-huh. the fairways are wide and and you know they just stripe it like they're used to playing every golf course like it's twenty yards wide. They never they never miss wide very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, so that's a chance to. You know, and they don't hit the ball quite so high as the men do. Yep. So, you know, designing a course thinking about their skill set would be very different. It wouldn't have to be this big wide thing that everybody builds now mm-hmm. that, that I sort of help popularize. But at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, we've gone too far in that direction because all you see now is, you know, the, every, every course that's won the best new award for the last 20 years is like the biggest, widest golf course that was up for nomination that year. It's like bigger is better. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I don't think that's true 
And I think the way to do it is, you know, like really I just want to build a 6,200 yard golf course. But I think that the way to sell just only building a 6,200 yard golf course is to say, okay, this is a great course for women and you guys can try your luck on it, but you're going to find out you're, you know, it's not a pushover. It could be women, women and juniors. You need the uh, LPGA Tour to create a TPC Sawgrass-like course for one of their championships. Well, supposedly they did years ago, whatever the LPGA International is that Reese Jones designed. I've never seen it. But I don't think it's the course that I'm describing here. Probably not. <laughs> I sure haven't heard a lot about it. <laughs> um, so you you touched on Sabonic and and you've done a couple co-design projects um, with other firms. You know how tough is it to to kind of share a vision with a an, another ego on a project? It's it's tough and it's it's different depending on who it is. Like you know. Yeah, so I, I mean, the, the two projects that I did in Australia, we worked with Mike Clayton's firm. And that was pretty easy because I was friendly with Mike going into it. And at the same, by the same token, I had more experience than he did at that point. So he really deferred to me on a lot of stuff. You know, it was more like he was a consultant. But at the same time, you know, the, the one of the reasons we, we entered into that agreement was, you know, he had some really strong guys that worked for him that would help get the golf course built project manager. You know, one of them was a superintendent for years and had been an assistant at Royal Melbourne who I really respected a lot. And it's like, you know, so, you know, he had some team members, like I had some team members that really fit well together. So that made it easy. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it was like, you know, he'd give a lot of input, but it ultimately it was my decision on what way to go. You know, Sabonic was completely different. You know, we had to agree from the beginning that, you know, nothing was finished until we both liked it. And, you know, that meant that um, Jack, you know, there were some holes that, you know, we tried to do some stuff that Jack didn't like, so we'd have to keep revising them, which is hard. And there were some holes that, he wanted to do that, you know, I didn't like it exactly the way it was, and he's not used to hearing that from somebody else. But, you know, the relationship between me and Jack was still pretty good because that's what we agreed to do. And we both understood going in that that's what we were agreeing to. But the hard part was getting our teams to mesh didn't work very well. I mean, on that project, you know, Jim Urbina, who ran the job with me, and then Brian Schneider and, and Eric and some of the guys that shaped it, they had to take like several steps back from the role that they're usually involved and the level they're usually involved. You know, like, I mean, the cool thing for Eric or Brian working for me is if they build a wild green and I like it, it's done. And at Sabonic, it wasn't done. You know, I could like it and then Jack didn't like it and then it had to change and that was hard for them. That's, you know, that's not what they were used to and the, the odds that they were going to build a green that, that went that flew through with flying colors and we were done were a lot lower um so you know that part of it was really tough and there were just you know there were more politics to that job than most um again you know that's what we signed up for and you know and i always said about that project well you know 
other people are going to have to tell me if they think this was a good idea to get us together to design it because, you know, both Jack and I are always going to look at it like, oh, I would have done something different on that. Um, you know, and yet, and yet it's a pretty good golf course and it posted some big things and, and gotten a lot of acclaim for doing it. So I'm not saying that they did it the wrong way. You know, it's just, it's just, it's a different kind of emotional experience to doing it. And, you know, you know, I don't get to go back to some of my own courses and enjoy them and play them as often as I'd like. But when I do go back to them, I really feel good about most of them. You know, it's not like I'm tinkering and second guessing myself and, you know, wanting to go rebuild the third green because I just don't like the way it turned out. Um, and, you know, so, so in most cases I can just go back and play golf and have fun. And I yeah. actually play pretty well because I, you know, cause I'm comfortable with all the shots that I got to hit. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Sabonic is kind of the, the rare one that when I go back, there's still questions about it. And, you know, even if I'm playing with a friend, they, they, they all want to know like, okay, so is this your idea or is this Jack's idea? And it just takes away from the fun we normally have building the thing. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I imagine it, it, it's just got to be so tough when both have to sign off on it and, you know, the, it kind of differing design philosophies with the, with the two firms. Um, I want to, I want to, yeah, t- I mean, partly it's, you know, I, I will say too, partly it's my fault. I mean, if I had known Jack Nicholas well at the beginning of the thing, I should have said to him, you know, look, don't worry that we're going to ignore what you have to say. You know, you don't have to babysit us to make sure that we're sticking to sticking to things. Yeah. You know, just let us rough in stuff for you and then come out and, and you know, tell us all the changes you want to make just like you would to your own staff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, th- that course was overstaffed. Yeah. We didn't need all, you know, we didn't need all my people and all his people there at the same time. That part was the part that didn't work so well. Yeah, it, it's got to be tough. Um, so 